This is an ABC podcast. It's an Olympic sport. It comes from Japan, but it doesn't have an altogether respectable reputation there. The Kirin is one of the Olympic cycling races. Very exciting to watch. So why does it hold an ambiguous place in Japanese culture? Hello, I'm Amanda Smith, and more on the Japanese Kirin later here on Sporty. Now, if you've been watching the gymnastics in Tokyo, well, you'll be aware of the level of pressure the top competitors face. And by now, you'll be an armchair expert on the various events and apparatus. Imagine then if one of those pieces of equipment was not properly set up, like, say, at the wrong height. It wouldn't happen, would it? In the lead-up to the Sydney Olympics in 2000, do you remember the TV series The Games, where the Olympics were being organised by the incompetent and the corrupt, with John Clark, the star of the show? And a famous episode of The Games was where it emerged that the 100 metres running track was not 100 metres long. It measured, in fact, 94 metres. Well, at least they discovered it before The Games began. In real life, though, a similar sort of stuff-up did actually happen at the Sydney Olympics in the women's gymnastics, and it was worse than the fictionalised one. It's the subject of a podcast called Blind Landing, the untold story of one of the biggest mistakes in Olympic history. A key player in the story was Alana Slater, a 16-year-old from Perth competing in her first Olympic Games in the final of the women's gymnastics individual all-around competition. Now, Alana, there are four events that make up this competition. There's the balance beam, the floor exercise, the uneven bars and the vault. And they're all running at the same time, aren't they? So groups of competitors do each of these things in a different order. Absolutely. So before the competition, there's a draw to see where you start on the apparatus. So everybody has their favourite order, but you get what you're given and you make the most of it. So at the Sydney Games, what what did you start on? I actually started on the balance beam. It's a hard apparatus to start on when you're nervous and then you get to unleash a bit of energy on the um, floor exercise and then vault and then finish with the joy of flying on the uneven bars. All right. So that was the order for you. When you came to the vault, though, well, first of all, describe this event and the apparatus. You know, it's a pretty daunting feature to be standing at the end of the vault runway when you're only, you know, five foot and you're thinking, okay, I've got to get over this. So your, your mental preparation is getting the most amount of power in your run-up, hitting the board in the absolute sweet spot, so right at the top where all the springs are, making sure that you get your arms. For me, I was doing a front entry vault, getting my arms in nice and quick and low so I could hit the vaulting table, use it as a block, and then come off the horse and do a half twist and a back layout and land on my feet. All right. Now, before you go, do you get a practice vault? So we do. In women's artistic gymnastics in the all-around finals, we get what we call in gymnastics the 30-second touch. So it gives you that just last-minute adjustment to get your technique appropriate for the apparatus at play. So what happened when you did your warm-up vault? Yes, so I was the first to go and it was the third rotation. So keeping in mind, there had already been 18 gymnasts compete on the vaulting course at this time. So 
I stood at the end of the vault runway and I've spent much of my life staring down the vault table at that stage and I just knew it looked wrong. I, I believe I even said out loud, does the vault look low to you, anybody? Does the vault look low? But in your mind, you're a 16-year-old and you're thinking, am I right? Maybe I'm just really nervous at the Olympic Games. You know, to be there is an incredible achievement because it's only the top echelon. So in my mind, I'm just standing there and I'm thinking, that looks low. And if that is low, there is no way I'm going to land on my feet because it was my hardest event at the time. So I spent countless hours training, a little bit extra numbers, just to so I could be competitive in the all-around. All right. So you think the, the vault looks low. What, what happens then? I take my first warm-up and I run down the vault runway. And as I mentioned before, I'm thinking about my speed. I'm thinking about hitting the sweet spot on the vaulting table. And I go downwards. And, you know, being a short athlete, I never go downwards onto the, onto the vault. It was always more of a upwards and blocking situation. So I immediately knew that my instinct standing at the top of the vault runway was correct. It was too low. And there was no way that I was going to be able to perform my vault successfully. And so my immediate reaction was to actually call out to my coach and say, Nikolai, the vault's too low. I haven't grown overnight. (laughs) He stood up against the vault. Meanwhile, I'm standing on the mats and everyone's thinking, get off the mat, Alana, I'm sure. But I'm standing there and I've stopped the entire warm-up at the Olympic Games. And he's like, Alana, you're right, this is too low. And so we have to tell the judges straight away. And, you know, before you know it, there are officials and there are the Women's Technical Committee from the FIG coming around. There's tape measures and they're measuring it. And then there's this signal to raise the vault. I was right. Mm. And it was a dangerous situation. So the vault was five centimetres, two inches lower than it should have been. See what I mean about life imitating art? But, but tell me, why does this matter? If your vault table isn't two inches or five centimetres too low, it changes the entire trajectory. So for an athlete that's entering on like myself, I went on forward, I was using it as a block to be able to change my forward momentum into an upwards momentum and to create rotation. So if I wasn't getting that same block, I was then not getting the right height and rotation to be able to complete my vault successfully or safely. But if I was an athlete that was entering on backwards, blindly onto the vaulting horse, like Elise Ray from the USA, who had a very scary fall in her warm-up touch, you know, she's expecting the vault to be exactly where it is every day in training. So she set up her round of, so the skill onto the board. She set up how fast she swings her arms backwards onto the vaulting horse to be able to get the same block, to create the same rotation, to create the same trajectory and height. And again, she doesn't get that and those athletes don't get that, then you're in a dangerous land. Yes, and as you've said, half of the other gymnasts in the final had already competed on the vault. The US gymnast Elise Ray, as you say, had a very scary fall. In fact, was, I think, moments away from landing on her neck. What about other gymnasts who'd already done the vault before you got to it? For some, it completely stopped their competition. Annika Rita from Great Britain, she injured her ankle and was unable to finish her competition. And, and so and that's a heartbreaking moment for her. But then you've got someone like Svetlana Korkina, who... The Russian champion, the who Russian was gymnast, expected to win that final. 
Absolutely. She was the favourite and she was competing a very difficult vault. And for her to falter and land on her knees in that moment, it wasn't just about the fall in that moment on that apparatus. It was the loss of the potential gold medal for her. She was out of contention. And that changes how you mentally approach your next apparatus. You know, we always train so hard to be able to put it aside, put it in a box. And sometimes the moment is so momentous, it's almost impossible to put those emotions aside and to continue with a positive Mm. thought pattern and mindset into your last two events. At the time, did you have any awareness that so many of the gymnasts who'd already competed on the vault had fallen? So I was aware of obviously the crowd with some scary falls with a, and the oohs and the ahs, but I don't think I was fully aware of how many mistakes were happening and how many scary falls there were at the time. So for me, I was trying to just be in my moment and deal with my competition because that's all you can do. Why had none of the other gymnasts noticed, though, what you did? You know, the ones who'd competed on the vault before you did. Why had none of them noticed that this crucial piece of equipment was set at the wrong height? I don't know whether it's not that they hadn't noticed. I guess it's more I don't know whether they had said anything and I didn't know whether they had just questioned whether it's just themselves. You know, you're in the biggest moment of your life And you just expect for the equipment to be set up correctly. So for an athlete who's so finely tuned, you just think it might just be a little bit of extra nerves because this is the moment you've been working for for at least 10 years. Well, after you'd made the call, the vault was raised to the correct height and you and the rest of the gymnasts competed with it at the correct height. But what about the ones who'd already done it? Did did the officials immediately tell them what had happened? This is an unprecedented moment in Olympic history, in gymnastics history. The competition wasn't stopped at the time, so athletes on the other apparatus were certainly still competing. And the, the, I guess the rumours and the murmurs started to float across to those other people in the arena because there was reactions from the crowd and people noticing obviously more officials around the vault and the vault wasn't going ahead. So they would have started to see that there was something going on on vault. And then I guess the FIG, Women's Technical Committee, they had to make a decision as to what they were going to do and how then how would they relay that communication. So what did happen, as I understand it, is that as you say, the competition went on. And then at the end, those who'd taken the vault before you'd found it was too short, were able to take their vault event again. But I think as you've said earlier, you know, they were so sort of, their their confidence had been shot in the first go on on the vault. And so it really didn't help, I don't think. No, I think every athlete really would have liked to have started the competition again. But how do you logistically fit in another entire competition when you have a schedule set up that is so tightly planned? But when the option to have a redo was given to the athletes for someone like Svetlana Korkina, that moment had passed. And in her mind, why would she redo it again? Because she couldn't change on the next event that she had another fall. And that's a really sad moment because we'll never know 
who could have won that if the vault was set right at the beginning of the competition. Yeah. What were the ramifications of this on the end result, do you think? I think at the end of the day, we, we had some incredible gymnasts come first, second and third, and they still would have been in the running for an all-around medal. But it took out some main competitors that really were likely to win a medal. So I guess the answer is we'll never know how it changed the results. Yeah. Well, Romania, I think, got first, second and third, although then the gold medalist was disqualified for failing a drug test. Now, that's another story, of course. Um, It is a whole other story. Look, there are really unusual things that happen at the Olympic Games, but usually it comes down to performance or unusual mistakes by the athlete or incredible performances that no one expected. But it certainly isn't usually apparatus being set up incorrectly. And it certainly changed the trajectory of the competition. But for me, I'm so proud of the fact that I trusted my gut and I trusted my coach to listen to me, to allow me to have a voice. And that's pretty incredible when you stop and think about it. A 16-year-old stops an entire Olympic Games premier event final and questions something that feels wrong and then is actually right. Well, it's good to hear a good story about a young gymnast and coach relationship, that's for sure. And Alana Slater was the 16-year-old competitor for Australia in the women's gymnastics all-around final at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, where the vaulting table, vaulting horse, was unwittingly set five centimetres lower than it should have been for half the competition, making it dangerous and unfair. Seems extraordinary, unbelievable that it should have happened at an Olympic Games. Alana, as the whistleblower, thank you for telling us about it. Oh, my pleasure. And if you want the story in more detail, there's the podcast called Blind Landing, the untold story of one of the biggest mistakes in Olympic history. You're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith. At the Olympic Games, in the cycling events, there's the Kieran, one of the track cycling races. It came into the Olympics at Sydney in 2000, and it's a version of a Japanese cycling sport. In Japan, Kieran holds a very particular and not altogether comfortable or respectable place in the culture. Justin McCurry has lived in Japan for decades. He's the Tokyo correspondent for The Guardian and the author of War on Wheels about Japanese Kieran. He joins us from Tokyo. And Justin, just give me a picture, first of all. If I were to go to a Kieran meeting in one of Japan's velodromes, what would it be like? What happens? Who's there? What goes on? Well, if you're interested in going to a a Kieran meet, you're, you're in luck because they're held pretty much every single day of the year. Generally speaking, there are 11 or 12 races. There's a gap of about half an hour between each race, and that's to give the punters at the velodrome time to look at the form to consider their options and, of course, to place their bets. The riders draw lots to see which colour jersey they wear. The jerseys are really colourful and they're all wearing armour to protect mainly their collarbones and their ribs. Armour? So th- is that over or under their colour That's shirt? under their jersey. So their jerseys are actually, when you think of like the really tight cycling shirts that uh, the Grand Tour riders wear, these are much baggier and that's because they need to fit that armour underneath. And they'll come through what the Japanese call the fighting gate. Their names will be announced. They'll bow. 
and they'll line up and then they'll be given a few minutes to gather their thoughts. And this is one of the most interesting parts of the race for me, because you'll learn more about the riders, about how nervous they are, about how determined they look. A lot of them have sort of rituals and habits that they go through to give them confidence that they're going to be safe during what promises to be quite a difficult and possibly dangerous seven laps of the velodrome. Well, what are what are its origins? When and why did it start in Japan? Yeah, you have to go back to uh, the end of the Second World War when obviously a lot of Japanese cities were in ruins. But there were people, soldiers who returned from fighting for Imperial Japan who came back to a defeated country. They wanted to get their own lives back on track, but they also wanted to put something back into Japanese society and to help their fellow Japanese. And the two architects of Keirin, if you like, had been heavily influenced by cycling, uh, bike racing in Northern Europe, places like Denmark and Germany at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the use of pacer bikes and sprinting around steeply banked velodromes. And they thought they could do this, but just have one pacer and uh, multiple riders behind. That would keep them more or less together for the most part of the race. And then the pacer would peel off the track and leave the competitors to sprint to the finish. So that's really the genesis of Kairin. And what the other important factor, of course, was not just to provide entertainment and to build a business for themselves, but to keep a portion of the money that the spectators spent on gambling to help rebuild Japan's war-torn infrastructure. They did that. It was extremely successful, way more popular than they'd ever imagined. 10 to 15 years after that first race in 1948, you saw Keirin velodromes popping up all over Japan, including here in the capital, Tokyo. And how does Keirin translate into English, Justin? Yeah, you've got the Japanese version made up of two kanji characters derived from Chinese originally. And the K rhymes with hey stands for competition or battle. And then the Rin the second character stands for wheel. So literally translated, it means a battle on wheels. And then you mentioned the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. That's the first time uh, Kirin made its Olympic debut. Since then, it's kind of become known as Kirin among the sort of international uh, cycling community. Which is how I was pronouncing it <laughs> until I heard you. Well, yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but I think that's a good thing because there are quite significant differences between the two sports. In Japanese, Kirin... You have much bigger velodromes. In the Olympics, it's a 250-metre track in Japan. They're anything from 333 to 500 metres long. They're generally outdoors, and there are more riders. And they're, they're sort of given, not carte blanche exactly, but they're given more licence to use their bulk in order to uh, make their way to the front and sprint across the finish line first. So you'll quite often see shoulder barging, even headbutting at a Japanese Keirin race. The Olympic version is a bit stricter. Well, now, the key thing about Japanese Kairin is that it's a betting sport. It's sort of like human horse racing in a way, really. What What's the attitude in Japan to gambling on sport, to, to gambling in general? Highly contradictory, I think, is the easiest way to answer that. So the Japanese do like a bet. You know, a lot of Japanese people go to places like South Korea and Macau and, and Las Vegas to go to casinos because... Casinos are illegal here in Japan. Japan frowns on gambling for a couple of reasons. I think it's miraculous recovery after the Second World War and the, the speedy development of the Japanese economy. 
kind of meant that Japanese people placed a great deal of emphasis on hard work and getting ahead through sheer hard work. So there was that sort of objection to the easy money that you can sometimes make through gambling. And there was also inevitably after the Second World War, the involvement of the Japanese Yakuza, Japanese organized crime syndicates at Keirin velodromes. So it's frowned upon for that reason as well, even now when the Yakuza really have no influence on Keirin whatsoever. So there's some somewhat contradictory opinions about gambling. The reason why Keirin exists at all, along with horse racing and motorcycle racing and motorboat racing, is just the only four sports that you can bet legally on in Japan, because they're all run by state entities. So in fact, the law says that gambling is illegal in Japan, but these sports are allowed to go ahead and people are allowed to bet on them perfectly legally. But there is this sort of, uh, right from the start, there's been this sort of ambiguous position that this sport sits in in Japan. Yeah, that's right. It's incredible, really, because the top riders, they're Superb athletes. Some of them do make the crossover from professional Japanese Keirin to the Olympics, yet very little is really known about them. And they're certainly not superstars of the kind that you would find in, say, professional baseball or rugby or football. So there is this ambiguity. And I suppose you could say that despite the fact that it raises billions of US dollars a year in betting receipts, And despite the fact that it's held somewhere in Japan almost every day of the year, it sort of takes place in the shadows. Mm. Now, the day before uh, race day, the riders sort of have to declare their tactics, I think, don't they? You know, how they're going to position themselves in the race. Now, how does that work? Yeah, this is probably the hardest part of Keirin to work out. So, I mean, it's deceptively simple in that... There are nine races and the first one over the finish line wins. But, you know, in between the start and the finish, there are all sorts of things going on. Effectively, you know, we've all experienced lockdowns in the last 18 months where Keirin riders go into some sort of lockdown every time they compete. And this is obviously to prevent match or race fixing. So for the duration of the meet, it could be anything from three to five days. They'll live in accommodation that's attached to the velodrome. They're not allowed access to mobile phones, laptops, tablets, any device that's Wi-Fi enabled to prevent any contact with the outside world. And they do declare their tactics. The reason being that although there's as much jeopardy in a Karen race as in any other form of racing, and an unpredictability, and you must have that if people are going to gamble on it, of course, you also have to give the punters at least an idea of how each rider is going to behave in the early stages of the race. And this takes the form of something called the line. Um, The line, if I could put it at its simplest, is just either a pair or a group of three or sometimes even four riders who are from the same region. They may even train together on a regular basis. And they will sort of collaborate in the early stages of the race. So typically you will find that the youngest member of, say, a three-man line will be right at the front. And the reason is, quite similar to the Tour de France in some ways, he'll be protecting his more senior colleagues from headwinds. And they will reciprocate perhaps by blocking competing cyclists from other regions coming up from behind and taking the lead. So there's a sort of limited form of collaboration that takes place during a Keirin race. And the declaration of tactics is just to 
give the punters an idea of who's going to be in what position in each of the lines so that they can make what they believe at least is an informed bet. That by no means means it's easy to predict the result of Caverin races because once the pacer has left the track, it becomes incredibly unpredictable, as I've found to my cost a few times. <laughs> so, look, despite its kind of seedy reputation, is Japanese Caverin racing exciting to watch? Is it an interesting sport? I think of all of the track cycling disciplines and perhaps any form of bicycle race, it's the most exciting, partly because you have this, I suppose what you could describe as a level playing field for part of the race while they're all nestling behind the pacer. But then suddenly you hear the bell with a, a lap and a half to go, you know, the temperature rises, you can see the riders lift their backsides off the saddles and it becomes incredibly fast and incredibly physical. And this is when you get headbutting and shoulder barging and occasionally crashes and it all works together and results in some extremely exciting and unpredictable cycling. And remember that these are nine cyclists, professionals who are reaching speeds of 70 kilometers an hour when they come into the home straight and they're all in incredibly close proximity. So you can imagine, especially when it's a big race with a lot at stake and with a big crowd at the velodrome, just how exciting that can be. It's For me, it's been addictive. <laughs> well, there, there have been some international cyclists who've competed on the Kairin circuit in Japan. The Australian, Shane Perkins, uh, he's done, done it a lot and been successful. He describes Kairin as boxing on bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those very reasons, because of the physicality. And I think Shane is an example of how Japan's you know, fairly restrained attempts to make Kairin more international have really been a success. And it's something that they should put more effort into, uh, I, I think. Shane's won a lot of races here. Now that he's retired from international cycling, I think only in the last few weeks, you know, I'd be very surprised if he didn't come back to Japan at some point. He'd need to be invited. Uh, but he's very popular. He's, he's a great competitor and he's really respected over here. All right. So what is the future then of Karen in Japan? Yeah, it's a difficult one to predict. You know, on the one hand, I'm quite optimistic because when you look back at Karen's history, and I, I've always argued that the history of Karen is very much the history of post-war Japan. It started off in the ruins of war, uh, in the chaos of the post-war period, and it became incredibly popular. And then it obviously benefited from the Japanese economic miracle in the 50s and 60s, where people had more income, they had more leisure time. Then there was a political backlash, and you had civic groups in the 60s and 70s and local political leaders who didn't like gambling. They thought it was a bad influence. And Kairin spent many years really fighting for its reputation. And then you had the bursting of the Japanese economic bubble in the late 80s, early 90s. And again, you saw Kairin really struggling. So now, well, it's weathered all of those storms and it's still extraordinarily popular and lucrative. I mean, last year, I think the latest figures I've seen were for last year. Karen punters raised about six billion US dollars in betting receipts, um, you know, a lot of which went on prize money and paying staff and all the rest of it. But some of which was also still, as 70 years ago, is still invested in local infrastructure projects. I think Karen's biggest challenge now is... Again, it's a challenge facing Japanese society. It's a shrinking, aging population. So if Kairin's going to survive and prosper for another 70 years, what does it need to do? It needs to attract new audiences. So what it's trying to do, and what I hope it continues to do, is to 
take the women's sport more seriously uh, and attract more female fans, attract younger spectators. And of course, one thing which would really boost the profile of the sport is if a Japanese cyclist managed to win a medal of one colour or another at the Tokyo Olympics. At the at the Olympic Kieran. That's right. There are two Japanese men and one Japanese woman. Um, you know, the last year has been so chaotic for all athletes in terms of their preparations that I think, you know, a lot of events at the Olympics are quite hard to call, to predict. So who knows? Perhaps this could be Japan's year. Mm. And Justin McCurry is the author of War on Wheels, Inside Kieran, Kieran and Japan's Cycling Subculture. Kieran or, or Kieran. <laughs> Justin is The Guardian's Tokyo correspondent and a long-term resident there. Justin, thank you for joining us here on Sporty. Thanks very much. And Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit. I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.